Welcome to Multifamily Syndication Unscripted, a show that teaches investors the truth about multifamily real estate. Your hosts, Ben Labovich, Sam Grooms, and Scott Hollister have more than 30 years of combined experience in real estate and finance. We are active multifamily syndicators and operators, providing you with detailed and cycle-appropriate content. Absolutely no fluff. So, if you want to be smarter about how and where you put your capital to work, listen up. You will learn what works in today's market conditions. All right. Welcome to the Multifamily Syndication Unscripted Show. Here with your co-hosts, Scott Hollister and Ben Leibovich. Sam Grooms is sleeping in today. So, Ben, I hear you're on vacation. Thanks for the calendar Google invite. I had to decline, but how's Utah? Terrible, dude. <laughs> what can I say? It's cold. It's cold. There's no sunshine. There's no blue skies. There's no palm trees anywhere. It's cold. I'm cold. I'm wearing warm clothing. It's weird. It's 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 cold. And I'm I am I'm in a basement room, which doesn't help anything. And when you come to visit your mother-in-law, you're just happy you're not in a closet. As long as you have a bedroom, you know, be it in the basement, count your blessings and let that go. You know, it's mm-hmm. not, it could have been worse. It could have been a broom closet or something. So um, I am, I am ready to go home and, and uh, I'll be going home tomorrow. Uh, but uh, Sam's not here uh, because we've had a lot of back and forth and a lot of confusion. I'm in a different time zone and this and that and the other. But Scott and I are here. And we thought we'll just go ahead and pardon Sam's uh, uh, absence and go ahead and try to deliver some value and some content to you guys uh, so as uh, not to uh, miss the opportunity. So, so not to push the release of the first season back. We don't want to do that. So here we are. Scott, what are we talking about? Well, let me ask you first. You were working on a 60 unit that about a week to a week and a half ago, you told me you're a day away from finally achieving an agreement among parties. Um, how's that going? It's going well. I mean, I think the economics of the local market are the hardest decision in terms of a real value add. It's it's a grand slam in every sense of the word, but, you know, operating the the apartments long term i think that's my biggest concern um it has a bad reputation mom pop owner for the last 30 years there's there's plenty of skin on the bones to value add but are there enough tenants to fill those vacancies and that's that's the biggest problem so whenever there's bad reputation you have to rebrand the place Mm -hmm. the only real way to rebrand it is to put a bunch of money into it you you have to remodel it in a very significant and this is what we do in a very significant way you have to create a facelift is not enough um, a facelift may be enough for a an apartment building that is that is functioning already to begin with and you're trying to make it better um, for something that is got reputation problems when you google it you know there, there's bad things going on you're going to have to like in a serious way, put your foot down, put your stake in the ground and say to the marketplace, I am changing this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my concern, and I told you that before with the marketplace, 
Is the marketplace affluent enough to recognize your efforts? Because that's what it comes down to. Because if you can't afford to throw those big punches, because you can't afford to hike those rents enough, then you've got what you had, and what you had wasn't great. And and it's, you know, it's so, so, so where do you go? You know, where do you go? So I'm always afraid of these, these things. It's, that's why, like, I'm, I'm a big proponent of class A markets, you know, millions population, like a big place where people have jobs, population is growing, things like that. I think that's what you're struggling with is that, is that you understand all these dynamics that will have to take place. You just don't know if they structurally can take place. It's tough. And, and I think that's, it's more of like a long-term cash flow play, right? This would be more of a debt deal than a syndication deal. And it would be, it's more of a C-class market, you know, population hasn't grown or shrunk in the last 15 years. I doubt it's going anywhere. It'd be a good flip to like a section eight tenant families getting in there. Um, you know, possibly HUD financing on the back end, you know, long-term 35 year fixed debt, in that sense of a deal, it's there. But again, you don't have an exit. There's no, there's not going to be a buyer. And we, we talked about that when you host that class in New Jersey. It was you, you have to know your end buyer because that's who you're flipping the property to. Right. Yeah. That's exactly it. You have mm-hmm. to know what is going to be attractive, who is going to be attracted to it, and why. Um, the other issue, of course, I have is management. You know, you are a pro at this. You can do certain things. You can you can look at something and say, for this much cash flow, I'll go ahead and eat the shit. And I will manage <laughs> these Section 8 tenants myself and I'll build out the infrastructure because I've done the CCIM classwork. I know how to structure leases. I know how all this works. I know the legal side of it. I- I'll figure it out. I'll put the systems in place. Will your buyer, will your buyer accept your systems and pay you for them or is 60 units just not enough that mm-hmm. that becomes a very muddy situation it could go this way it could go that way and it's just like you know it, it comes back to i just i i want to i want to have what everybody wants what what the greatest cross section of my audience mm-hmm. want i don't want to niche myself yeah it could be it could be attractive to this guy, but this guy is one of a hundred guys. I want something that would be attractive to 65 guys out of a hundred for one reason or another. That creates my exit. And I, I like that. And so it's like, I'm scared of these deals, dude. I am, you know, brokers call me with 40 to 70 units. I just say that don't even bother sending me numbers. I don't care what the numbers look like. I, I'm just scared. I don't, I don't know how to manage it and I don't know how to exit it. And that scares me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the biggest concern is management, especially for being so far away is you have to be able to rely on that third party management. I was just at IMN conference and there was a, a gentleman on the panel and he's talking about going into a market for the first time. And he's like, we bought a 50 unit and we got our butts handed to us. Absolutely. He's like, until we had that scale where, you know, we had a couple hundred units in that local market, you know, we can kind of share management between those 50, 60, 75 unit complexes. But again, until you have that scale, it's going to be another job. 
Yeah, it'll be another job because, and we will dig into this. There are episodes coming up in this podcast, uh, some of them maybe even in season one, dealing with the operating expenses. Uh, we'll dig into each line item later on. For now, what what is necessary to understand is that at a small scale, at a newbie scale, at a stupid scale, expenses are viewed as percentage of the top line revenues. This is wrong. It's wrong on every level. Why? Because expenses are not percentages. They have nothing to do with your income. Expenses of dollar amounts, and you need a certain amount of revenue, and the number of units is dictated by the average rents you're able to bring in, to absorb those expenses. You know, those expenses cost what they cost uh, in terms of dollars. And the problem with a 60 unit, specifically a 60 unit such as the one you're looking at, whereby your rents, I believe, are under $600, repositioned rents that were going to be under $600. That's just not enough top line revenue before the economic loss, which we'll be talking about today, to absorb all of the dollars that are necessary in order for the building to operate as a building should to have all of the bases covered, okay? That's a scary proposition because what you end up doing is you end up squeezing a square peg into a round hole. You end up cutting corners, half-assing systems, and even if you can get your head around it, it becomes a very muddy exit proposition. So that that 24 to 70 to 80 units in a market whereby your rents are between $700 and $1,200 is the worst space to be in because of this. Because to run like it should, it really needs to be approached professionally, systematized professionally, I would even say institutionally, but you can't afford to do it. So it has to be done, but you can't afford to do it, which puts you in a undesirable position mm -hmm. you know uh you may be forced to buy more assets in that location and you don't know if you're going to want to buy more assets in that location and then the other option is to sell and you don't know if you can sell and who you're going to sell to and everything else and so sometimes you know I, I i had a mentor he passed away this year um taught me a lot of things, not specific. His name is Ted. Um, I'm good friends with his grandkid, the whole family really, but grandkids, Sam, uh, Sam Ryder. I told, uh, taught him by a Lynn. That's how we met. Like I met the family. Uh, and his father was a real estate guy. Uh, uh, grandfather was a real estate guy. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that in some ways I surpassed him a long time ago in terms of uh, mechanically, real estate mechanics, real estate, you know, technique. But perspective-wise, I learned an awful lot from, from Ted, and one of the things he said is that you can't tell a stumbling block from a stepping stone from afar. They look alike. And it's not until you get close and you step on it that you realize if that was a good thing or a bad thing. So in situations like this, like, you know, I'm always like, yeah, there's cash flow. It pencils, pencils, it pencils, you know. And I talked to Scott and I'm like borderline trying to talk me out of the deal 
even though there's cash flow, because like, you know, you've got nice head of hair. You want to keep it? <laughs> you know, this is one of those things that, you know, there's a lot of perspective that needs to be put onto a deal like this. Maybe it's just falling to my chin. You know, that's, that's what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, that's one of the biggest questions. All right. So, you know, once we're going from our, you know, potential rental income, you know, now we're talking about, you know, loss of lease and, and certain things in that aspect. And what are we looking at when we get into that hundred unit plus range? So the expenses are easy to wrap your head around. You know, if you stroke a check for it, if the money leaves your bank account, it's easy to internalize and visualize and internalize what it is. You know, you pay for third-party services. You pay the contractors. You buy equipment. You buy piping. You buy, you know, paint. You, you pay labor. You do, you know, that's easy for us to understand. The thing about, the thing about multifamily is that here's the top line, but here's the collections. There's a gap between those things. And the income that was supposed to end up in your pocket, but didn't quite make it, got stuck somewhere between, here's what my rent roll says I should have, and here's what I actually collected and put in the bank. Those things are called economic losses. And those are difficult to wrap your head around. And I just yesterday, I made a post on Bigger Pockets because somebody was asking questions about 1% rule. Is 1% rule a good way to analyze multifamily property? 1% rule will tell you that monthly income is equal to 1% of the perceived value. So if you get $2,000 per month in rents, you can pay $200,000 for a piece of property. Well, there's many follies with that. There's, it's, it's wrong on many levels. But most immediately, you're not going to get $2,000 of income just because you have four units renting for $500. You're going to have economic losses against those $2,000. So, so teeing up your valuation perspective on this property based on the fact that you have four units and they're renting for four, uh, $500 is just wrong to begin with. You set yourself up to fail before you even started because you haven't accounted for what we call economic losses. So under the umbrella of economic losses, we have several line items and I'm, I'm going to rattle them off and then we'll go through them one by one. Again, it's a 35, 40 minute show. So probably not going to dig in in too much detail, but we'll let you know what all those are, define them and explain a little bit. So uh, you have lost to lease abbreviated LTL. That's like the first item. The second item is uh, of course, vacancy. You have physical vacancy. Uh, then you have something called concessions. Then you have something called credit loss. Sometimes we call it bad debt. And then the final item that would be grouped into economic losses is um, non-revenue units. So the most, let me start from the bottom because those are easier to comprehend and I kind of want to fly through them. And then we'll spend a little time talking about LTL. Non-revenue units. Um, I still have a portfolio of property in Lima, Ohio. I, I moved to Arizona three years ago, but I still have a portfolio in Lima. Uh, one of the things I do is I provide an apartment for my property manager. You know, he's been with me for 10 years. He knows those properties better than I do at this point. Uh, he knows all the tenants, he, you know, all, all of that. Uh, 
So part of how I compensate them is I provide them an apartment. That apartment has become a non-revenue unit. I, I'm not generating revenue on it. Okay. In my case, uh, this is because I am using it to compensate my worker. Uh, we just closed 117 unit in Phoenix, South Mountain. Uh, at the, on the day of closing, there was one vacancy and it was a non-revenue unit. Now, in this case, it was non-revenue because it was a down unit. They had um, water damage, they had a pipe burst, and so they had to cut out a bunch of walls. They had to basically have to rebuild the unit, okay? Uh, that's another reason for why you would have non-revenue units. Now, you might ask, why would you run a non-revenue unit in perpetuity? Well, maybe you don't make enough cash flow to rebuild the unit. Uh, maybe you have an employee. Maybe, you know, in a lot of communities, you'll see uh, a maintenance guy getting a discount, not even the whole, the whole rent paying for him, just a discount on his rent, things like that. Well, if you are going to uh, be intellectually honest about this, you have to say, if I was renting this unit, if this unit was available to be rented, I would be generating revenue on this unit, such as it is, though. I am missing out on this revenue. So to be intellectually honest, if you're gonna plan on having something of a sort, you have to indicate some negative number against the gross potential or gross scheduled income, right? So at the top of the spreadsheet, the number that is at the top is your gross schedule. We talked about that when we discussed, you know, one of the previous episodes, lost to lease and things like that. So you start out with this absolute top line maximum potential income, and then you have expenses. Well, before you get to expenses, you have these line items that are drags on this income. They're, they're, they're not really expenses, they're related, numbers related to income, but they're still negative numbers. That's what economic losses are. Well, non-revenue unit, would be one of those numbers. That would be in that category. And it would be a negative number of some sort that you will put in there. Next uh, is bad debt or credit, uh, you know, credit loss. I don't have to explain to you what it is. Uh, this does not include your payment to the attorney for eviction because that will be in a separate line item contract service uh, in the uh, underwriting. Uh, this is simply lost revenue. Again, we're talking about dollars that originated at the top and they started to flow. They started to flow to your bottom line and they didn't make it. Some of those dollars disappeared into thin air. So somebody didn't pay you. Somebody skipped overnight. Somebody did a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, whatever that is. That's your bad debt. Maybe you can recover it. Maybe you can't recover it. If you can't recover it, you have to book it if you're going to be intellectually honest about that. Okay. Concessions. What is a concession? Um, first week free. First month free. 50% uh, discount off month 13 when you sign a 12-month lease. Whatever the gimmick may be, uh, that's a concession. These things add up. 
And in some markets, they're much more prevalent than in other markets. Like in some markets, people expect almost, tenants expect to be given something for free before they will rent an apartment. And so you kind of book that into your underwriting and expect it. Uh, you really should. I mean, that's, that's a separate question of what stabilized looks like. When we get to the end of this podcast, I'll throw out a number at you. Uh, but of course, it's all market specific. Okay. Mm-hmm. Next, you have physical vacancy. Physical vacancy is physical vacancy. Uh, guys, again, a lot of these numbers, like they're driven by the market. You can't, you can't really outperform the market all that much. Just to give you an example, um, the building that we closed now, just you know, three, three weeks ago or something, the sub-market physical vacancy annualized number is like plus or minus two and a half percent. That's what you get in a high growth, low supply market. Okay, two and a half percent vacancy. Well, is it is it reasonable to underwrite that going forward? Is it reasonable to expect that it's going to stay two and a half percent forever? Right? It's not. But you are certainly not going to if you're going into a market that is running at eight percent physical. Uh, vacancy, as a lot of markets are. It's not reasonable to underwrite 5%. You know, you, you can't say, because I'm such a wonderful operator, I'm going to run this thing much better than the market is running. So in my case, when I do the underwriting, what I'm literally saying, I'm going to run it worse than the other guy. Which is why I need so much more value add, because the first piece of my value add is to compensate myself with the, the, the punishment that I take on my underwriting based on the fact that there's, you know, two and a half percent vacancy in the marketplace and I'm underwriting five or six percent physical vacancy. So I need I need value add to compensate for that. Now, the good thing is that once I stabilize it, if the market happens to hold, then I'm just going to make more money. But if it doesn't, I'm prepared for it to come back to kind of natural equilibrium that that can be observed over a 20, 30, 40 year span of time, right? So physical vacancy is driven by the marketplace. A lot of research goes in, a lot of, you got you to, you know, you got to not underprice yourself, okay? Uh, and now we've arrived to loss to lease, LTL. Um, the loss to lease is simply understood as the difference between what the market should be, uh, what the unit should be renting for versus what it's actually rented for. So to give you an example, let's say a unit can generate rent of $850. Because, you know, right now, if I had this unit vacant, in this condition, if I had it vacant and I put it on the market, I would be renting it for $850, okay? But if you look on my rent roll, you're going to see an $825 rent. So I have a $25 LTL 
Sometimes they call it lost to lease. Sometimes they call it lost to old lease. And that's kind of a good way to describe it, old lease, okay? So I have to book because the thing is, when I go to the top of my page and I look at the absolute 100% potential that I could bring in, which is my gross scheduled rents, I'm not getting that. That number would have to be 850. That's what I could and should bring in if I take this unit to market right now. But what I'm getting is $825 instead of $850. So then in this line item, LTL, I have to book minus $25 times 12 months. Okay, so minus $300. I have to look through my entire roster, my entire rent roll, and compare the actual rents received to the rents uh, uh, gross scheduled rent. And book that loss to lease. Now, the good thing is I can recover it. The bad thing is I can only recover it in one of two cases. Either lease is up and I send a letter to the tenant saying your rent is going up, or the tenant moves out and I re-rent the unit at what I feel is the appropriate market for that unit. The thing to understand, uh, first of all, when we talk about that scale where you start with rent roll, remember we talked in one of the previous shows we talked about, here's your rent roll. Now your schedule, this is what they're asking. This is, this is their schedule. Now we have our market. This is going to become our schedule. And this we have renovated market. Okay. So the difference between the rent roll and their schedule, and our market, that's lost to lease. All of that is lost to lease. The only last piece, the bump due to renovations, that's the bump due to renovations. Everything that comes before it, here's a rent roll, and here's our market. We've now bought the building. If we didn't touch these units, if we just got this vacant unit, you know, vacuum the floor, do the floor, you know, clean it up and rent it without remodeling it, this piece right here, is the LTL. It's the loss to lease. Now, that's the easy part to understand about loss to lease because you're buying mismanaged buildings. What well, mismanaged? They're not getting enough rent. Why are they not getting enough rent? Interestingly, that doesn't really have to be because it's mismanaged. When we buy this building, there's zero vacancies. Well, if there's zero vacancies, you know they're not getting the rents higher because they're trying to keep the vacancy lower. So they are taking on the loss to lease. They're booking an awful lot of loss to lease, but they're okay with that because at least their vacancy number is very, very low. And they're looking for a buyer, a buyer who maybe isn't sophisticated enough to know what physical, uh, what economic vacancy really is, what LTL really is, a buyer who sees Hey, there's no vacant units. These guys are running perfect. I want to. I want this building. I want to pay. I you know whatever. I want to pay. This is fantastic. It's perfect, right? So there's a lot of strategy involved in this, but you have you have physical vacancy. If you try to drive rents higher, obviously some people are going to choose to go somewhere else. Okay, or you can keep your rents down, but keep your physical vacancy down. So it's a, it's a mathematical equation where you're constantly balancing this and trying to figure out 
what's more important for me to drive my rent roll higher, which means I have to increase the rents, but my physical vacancy is going to increase as well. Or is it more important to me to keep the units full? And that, of course, is cyclical. In, in, in the lifespan of your owning the building, that strategy changes, obviously, right? But the, the easy-to-see loss to lease is that which I described. Here's the rent roll. Rents are way low. Here's where the rents should be. That's a bunch of LTL. That's part of my value add, and I get the rest by renovating units. So that's the easy piece. What people always forget, though, is let's look at what happens. Let's say you are in a market which is inflating by 4% per year, which is, you know, not the greatest market, but certainly better than the average because the average you would expect to keep up with inflation at 3%. If you're not inflating at 3%, you got a problem. You can't buy. We go back to your 60 unit. The problem is, is that your expenses are going to go up. There's just no way they don't go up, right? Utilities go up, taxes go up, everything goes up, right? So that's going up. If your rents are going up as, as much as expenses, then you're still going to open the delta just a little bit over time because your, exp- uh, your income was a higher number to begin with than your expenses. So when you compound a higher number, it's going to go up at slightly higher velocity than, than the low number, right? But it's not nearly enough to, to be happy with the returns. So if on the average expenses go up by 2%, you got to have at least 3%. If the expenses go up by 2.5%, you got to have rents that are going up at least 3 to 3.5%. You know? So that's another thing that scares me about buying a 60 unit where it, it pencils today, but you don't have an exit which backs you into this is nothing more than a long-term hold. The problem is, as a long-term hold, it has problems in the future because the expenses are going up, but your rents are not because that's the market. That's the kind of market you're putting yourself in, right? So even though you don't visualize the problem today, seven years from now, it might be like, what the hell happened? My water is like, you know, my trash, my taxes, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So... So the easy thing to understand is the LTL, which is structural, right? The difficult thing to understand is, let's say it's January 1st, and we sign a lease for $1,000, and you are in a marketplace that inflates 4%, okay? So by the end of the year, by the end of the 12 months, you've picked up 4% on your $1,000. So you have to re-rent that apartment for $1,040, okay? But let us say that six months go by, which means you've picked up 2% of the loss to lease of inflation, okay? So if you got your hands on that apartment six months down the road, you should be renting it for $1,020. Make sense? Because in the 4% inflationary market, you've inflated 2% half of the way there in six months. The problem is you can't because you signed the lease for 12 months on a $1,000 unit. So you can you have to hold through a certain amount of loss to lease until you can rectify it by renewing the lease at 1040. Or somebody moves out, you put a new person in at 1040. But throughout the whole period for 12 months, if you're signing 12-month leases, structurally, 
If this is an inflating market, which is what you should be buying in is uptrending markets, right? You are structurally picking up loss to lease. So a scenario whereby there's zero loss to lease structurally cannot exist. It can't. Now, you can go higher on the rents. You can create additional revenue streams uh, that, that maybe eat into that number, but there's still loss to lease. You may be compensating for it somewhere, but structurally, there, there's always loss to lease. Mm-hmm. Okay? So we've just gone, you know, the, the building that we bought six months ago in, in August, we just increased rent by $25. In another four months, we're going to increase rents another $25. On, on the remodeled units. So a two bedroom, two bath that we underwrote at 11.25 is now 11.50. Uh, you know, a one bedroom that we underwrote at 800 is now 8.25. We need to do that because if we're gonna stay with the market, we have to continually try to catch up, right? So are you going to have lost the lease of 4% just because you're in a 4% market? No, because you're not, renewing every single one of those units in the apartment same time so gradually you are getting your hands on vacant units or lease renewals whereby you're able to recapture something right but you need some amount of loss to lease you just do structurally you're not going to recapture all of it right so now we come back to what really happens so here's my gross scheduled revenue from my rents. And we're only talking about rents right here. We're not talking about the other income. We're only talking about rents. Here's what my schedule of rent says. My studio is this. My one bedroom is this. My two one is this. My two two is this. Multiply that by the numbers of each type of units that I have. And this is how much money I should be able to collect if I have no drags on that money whatsoever, economically speaking, if I have no economic losses. What is an appropriate amount by the time you figure stabilized, let's say, 5% physical vacancy because in a good market, you really shouldn't see any more than that, right? Uh, 5%. What really happens to the rest of it? You've got bad debt. You've got LTEL. You've got all that stuff. What is it? Well, you know, it's asset specific and more importantly, it's market specific. But I have never been able to underwrite anything under 9%. And it's somewhere between 9 and 12%. And it depends on your market, and it depends on your building. It depends on, you know, how's your road frontage. It depends on what kind of repairs are you going to do? How are you going to attract people? Uh, you know, how easy is it going to be to make this visible? Um, what type of audience are you trying to attract? Uh, how much bad debt do you need to book? Okay, all of these all of these things are important. They start with the market and then each asset specific uh, just due to the layout of the mechanicals and this and that and the other. It all has an impact. But I haven't been able to underwrite. I'll say I haven't had the balls to underwrite anything under nine percent. So we have our potential. 100%, 100%, this is what they're going for. Now we're minusing out that 5% vacancy. And then if it's nine, so we add another four to loss to lease, which leads us to our effective rental income. 
what are you doing as soon as you get that pro forma? Are you automatically booking your lost lease because you know it in the marketplace? Yeah. And you just going into it. How do you try to find those averages? Well, so the averages are well known. Uh, they're tracked professionally. There are reports that exist. You know, every major broker, national broker, you know, you've got Collier's, you've got Marcus Melichap, you got, you know, people that operate in the market. Obviously, they have statistics. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Second thing is uh, your PM. You know, my PM has 20,000 units in their portfolio. They're, they're based in Phoenix. They know Phoenix like the back of their hand. They've managed probably half the buildings in Phoenix in the past 20 years. Uh, there's very little guesswork involved. They understand who I am going to get for the remodel that I'm doing in that location. They can guide me on what lost to lease I can expect uh, to run it. Okay. But there are, we have to make a distinction between stabilized underwriting and the actual thing that you're going to inherit. What we are talking about today is stabilized underwriting. Obviously, I'm buying this thing, and I got to spend the first couple, three years fixing it, doing things to it, both physically and economically. Let's forget about that, because we have to take a lot more discount uh, against these numbers based on the fact that in the first couple of years, they're not going to look stabilized, because... They're not going to be stabilized. What we're talking about here, when I say 9%, what I'm talking about is stabilized. I'm saying that even once everything is fixed, everything, you know, the, the, the apartments are upgraded, uh, you know, the, the, the expenses are under control, the community is working to its capacity. Even when that happens, I'm still expecting to lose 9% on the minimum of my gross scheduled income, even on a stabilized basis. Mm -hmm. Make sense? And then you discount the crap out of that in year one and year two, which is a different conversation that we're not going to touch upon today. But even in a stabilized mode, you are still going to have, because people are people. They behave the way they behave. They move around for jobs. They do skip on you once in a while because they lose their jobs. Uh, they, you know, don't pay. They take, you know, three months to get on a payment plan and catch up. Well, while they do that, you have to book it if you're going to be intellectually honest about it, you know. Uh, things of that nature. It happens. It, it comes with the territory, even in a stabilized mode of operata, you know. It's just, it's, it's how it is. So, in my case, I am operating in Phoenix. Frankly, we probably don't need 9% in today's market. Um, but I just don't have the balls to book anything less than 9% uh, economic loss. Mm-hmm. You're padding it. You know, that, that's, that's the best way to do it with some data. I've seen people do silly things like 5% economic loss, 7% economic loss. I don't know how to run a building at 5% economic loss. I mean, you have to have close to zero vacancy, physical vacancy to run. And, and the thing is on a sustainable basis, you can't, you just, you can't, I don't care what your market is. You just can't do it. Um, I suppose maybe you can do it in some markets. Hmm. But, uh, 
Well, it's good. I mean, I think that's important because you're always thinking end term. You're always thinking five, 10, 15 years down the line, looking at those capital expenditures that you're going to have. You, you just got to book it somewhere, right? And I think that's what we should call this episode, Intellectually Honest with Ben. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to book it because it, it's going to happen. Uh, yeah, 100%. It's going to happen. Yep, just like taxes. <laughs> just like taxes. <laughs> um, all right, I think this is a good place to wrap up. So I think once we minus out our vacancy, lost lease, we get to our effective rental income. Then we're going to go into our other income collectible, uh, which equals our gross operating income before we're minusing out all those operating expenses. So Ben, why don't you take us out of this episode? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, maybe we're entertained just a little bit. Maybe we're educated just a little bit. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. We apologize for Sam not being here. Um, but uh, hopefully Scott and I fulfilled your expectations and then some. Uh, for the multifamily syndication unscripted, my name is Ben Leibovich. Scott Hollister is with me. Have a great day. We'll speak to you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Multifamily Syndication Unscripted with your hosts, Ben, Sam, and Scott. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time on Multifamily Syndication Unscripted.